It is a tremendous joy for me to stand before you this morning. I had a very interesting set of circumstances that occurred this week. Uh, Todd Murray and I were going to be heading out for that board meeting that I have each January for the Friends of the Spurgeon Library in Kansas City. And as last year, we had a bit of a challenging trip. We started out on very, very early Thursday morning at 4 a.m. in order to reach Kansas City by 1 o'clock in the beginning of the board meeting. And I picked Todd up at his home and we drove to Conway and I needed to, to buy some gas. And so we pulled into a station there and the fellow, there was only one fellow in there and he was very tired and listless. And we began to, uh, to go out of the car and I needed to pick something up from the trunk. And so I opened the trunk and closed it and took out my briefcase and I was about to hand Todd something and he was going to put in the gas and he put the, the nozzle in what he thought was the hole of the gas tank and didn't quite make it and began to put gasoline all over his pants and his shoe and it was really funny. <laughs> and he thought, you know, something is very, very cold on my leg. It was very cold outside, and the gas was even colder. Thank you. <laughs> and he went inside to the bathroom and had to wring out his sock of octane. And he came out, and he had to change pants, and he was really stinking. And, and then the trip went downhill after that. Because we arrived in Kansas City, we had lunch, and then we arrived at the board meeting, which is at William Jewell College. And... Liberty, Missouri, the Hopkins know where that is, and we arrived there, it was snowing, as you might imagine, in January in Kansas City, and it was very, very cold, it was 9 degrees, and probably like 20 below windshield, and so we walked into the, to the board meeting, and they were saying almost immediately that there was supposed to be some more uh, inclement weather, about six more inches of snow, and freezing rain, and so they just said, we really probably need to do all the business we can and then just release the rest of you who need to drive back to Springfield, Missouri and Springdale, Arkansas and Little Rock. So we met and the weather was, was looking like it was going to be so bad we thought maybe the thing to do would be to stay overnight and then have some time in the morning in which to gauge uh, you know, what time we should take off. And so we stayed at the home of uh, Greg and Francine Kearns, which many of you know. And we had a wonderful time with them. And so we woke up the next morning and we jumped in the car and we were taking off. And we turned on the defrost so that the heat would make, you know, ensure that the, the ice on the windows, the windshield wipers would just wipe them away as we were driving. And it just wasn't hot enough. And we were driving uh, on the, the interstate and uh, on US 71 there. And it was so bad that we could not see through the windshield because the defrost was not heating up properly. And so I was looking up above, I was looking below. We actually had to drive right behind 18-wheelers who would throw water up on the windshield so that at least we could have some level of vision. And, and we were driving right behind those 18-wheelers and it was snowing and we were driving room miles an hour. And, and it, was, it was really nerve-wracking. And so we were just about to go on the new 540. And, you know, it opened at noon on Friday and so we were able to go right on it. And we were driving along and we said, wow, this is a great view. And the weather had turned out pretty nicely in the afternoon. And we drove by and on the 
the side coming opposite of us, the two lanes coming opposite of us, there was this pickup truck that was engulfed in flames. And I said, Todd, I'm just so glad that's not us. We prayed for these people. We didn't know if they were out. And so we, we finished the 540, and we were just about to, to go on to the 40 right there at that interchange that was um, constructed first, I think, a number of years ago. And so we turned the curve, and we were right there in Alma, and we were driving along, and all of a sudden uh, it was very cold in the defrost. And it started to overheat, and all of this steam was coming out from underneath the car, and this car passed us, and he was pointing down like that. And I said, oh, he's just telling us that the ice is all falling away, because all we could see was just this white stuff behind us, and it looked like it was just ice that was falling off the car, and pretty soon we realized it wasn't ice at all. It was overheating, and so we, we just barely were able to get up on this hill, and then it died. And so then we were able to coast down the hill in neutral. And we then were able to go off on an exit in Dyer, Arkansas. How many of you know where Dyer, Arkansas is? Well, we were in Dyer Straits, believe me. And we were able to coast right into the parking lot of a Texaco station. And we said, praise the Lord, we're able to have some help. And we looked more closely into the window of the Texaco station. It was about 4.30 p.m. And the window sign said, for rent. So we said, oh, that's no problem. There's a Sitco that was right across the street. And we looked closely at that, and it said, for rent. And we said, now we're in trouble. And there was this fellow who was following us off the interstate in this small white car. And his name was Robert, and he had no front teeth. And Robert pulled up beside him. This is a true story, folks. I'm not making this up. And this guy said, you guys need any help? And we said, yes, we do. He said, I saw you guys steaming and then stopping and starting and sputting on the interstate. And so he said, I'll take you across the bridge because there's a gas station right there, but it has no mechanic service. But at least you can uh, maybe use the telephone. And so Todd went over there and he talked to this lady behind the counter and she was real gruff and rough, he said. And he said, uh, you know, we'd like to have uh, a phone call maybe to a wrecker service. And she said, what kind of car do you drive? And he said, well, I think it's a, it's a Ford Taurus. She said, see, you shouldn't buy those Fords. <laughs> Fix or repair daily, every time. Found on road dead. You know, those are Fords. He said, yes, could you just give me the telephone number, please? Thank you. So she gave him the number, and he called back to Alma, and the wrecker came, and they towed us back there, and the guy on the phone when Todd called said, yes, I'll be able to fix it, but I'm closing in 10 minutes, so you'll have to spend the night here in Alma. And, of course, the weather forecast was for a lot of freezing rain to come through the state the next morning, and so we were debating... Should we call someone and come pick us up, or should we stay overnight in Alma? It wasn't a wonderful proposition, believe me, because there was only one place, the Alma Inn, that was about one quarter star. And <laughs> so we, we stayed at the Alma Inn on Friday night, me and Todd. And, you know... <laughs> The Alma Inn, we, the walls were paper thin. There was this party going on at about 2 o'clock in the next room. They weren't there when we first came, but they showed up at 2 o'clock. And then the next morning, the guy had a coughing fit like you wouldn't believe. He was hockering the things up, and I'll tell you what, it was terrible. So we ran, ran back to the Exxon station. It was 9 o'clock. He said, your radiator is blown. We're going to have to replace it. I can do that. And so he said, you just hope that you haven't cracked a head here. And Mike, you know 
what's going on out here. And so he replaced the radiator and he called us and said, it's 1230, everything's ready, come and pick up your car. So we ran over there, we picked up the car and he said, you know, I called you I think a little too prematurely, there's a bit of a pressure loss here and um, we're going to have to check some more things out. And We went back to the hotel, we um, turned on the cable to watch the football game, the playoff game, and we watched it for about five minutes until it hit snow with no visual and no audio. And uh, it went from a one-quarter star to a one-eighth star very, very quickly. And so he called us again and he said, uh, are you sitting down? I said, yes. I said, what's up? He said, the bill. <laughs> so my car is still in Alma, Mike. And uh, we called sweet Charlie Jackson, who came and picked us up last night from Alma and took us back. And we were home late at night to be here this morning. So pray for the Ford Taurus. I think it's going to go to Hades. <laughs> so we had a wonderful, wonderful trip again to Kansas City. And uh, I'm very thankful to be here. But I want you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark. Chapter 6. We're going to be switching the Gospel of Mark from Sunday evenings, as many of you know, because I'm going to introduce a brand new series to you next Sunday evening called Defending Your Faith. And we're going to talk about a lot of things regarding the defense of the Christian faith, and that will be a Sunday evening series, and so that has allowed us to take our study of the Gospel of Mark now to Sunday morning. And we're in Mark chapter 6, and we're going to be looking this morning at the first six verses of Mark chapter 6, and we're entitling our message this morning, The Power of Unbelief. The Power of Unbelief. You know if you are alive and breathing and you have eyes to see and ears to hear that our world is engulfed in unbelief. It's filled with unbelievers at every turn who dominate the landscape with their pride and their arrogance and their selfishness and their discontent, their obstinance and their folly. And you frankly aren't plugged into reality if you don't easily perceive the incredible unbelief in our society. In fact, if you were able to see our world the way the Scripture categorizes a generation at any particular point, you would see that our world is engulfed in the incredible, insidious nature of what unbelief is and what it does. For instance, the Scripture speaks of unbelief resulting in a denying of God and His power. I wish we had time to study all of the verses that speak of unbelief motivating people to deny God, to deny His power in the face of incredible evidence that God exists and that His power is abundant. You would also see in our culture the result of unbelief and what the Scripture says about unbelief because it not only denies God and His power, but it forgets God and His provisions. You can see all around you 
that people assume that the wealth that they have or the homes that they buy or build are all as a result of their own power and their own strength. And so therefore their unbelief motivates them to forget God and to forget that the Bible says that God is the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills and he's the one who gives people the power to make wealth. And yet our world, because of its unbelief, forgets God and his provision. You look around you in our world and you also see that unbelief motivates people not just to deny God and his power and not just to forget God and his provision, but also to hate God and his purposes. I mean, it descends into the morass of, uh, of an unbelieving world that doesn't just say, I deny that God exists, I deny his power, I, de I forget all about God in the midst of the fact that he's nowhere around, that I'm here, I'm the only reality there is. It goes descendingly down into the muck and mire of, of even hating God and his purposes for people in their lives. And even to the, to the greatest descent, and that is that unbelief motivates people not to fear God and his person, not to reverence God, to, to respect God, to be in awe of his person, to be in awe of his presence. And that's what unbelief does. It is such an incredibly powerful thing. And as we come to Mark chapter 6 this morning, we have before us probably the most provocative text in all the Bible regarding unbelief. Listen to it. Mark chapter 6, verse 1. Jesus went out from there, that is, Capernaum, and came into his hometown, and his disciples followed him. When Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and the many listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man receive these things? And what is this wisdom given to him? And such miracles, these works of power, as these performed by his hands. Is not this the carpenter? the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. And listen to this incredible verse and a half. And he could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he wondered at their unbelief. Our Lord Jesus was shocked. You might even use the word stunned at the unbelief of the people in his own hometown regarding the work of God. He marveled stunned, shocked. He wondered at their unbelief. He couldn't believe it. That is the nature and the power of unbelief. It is so strong. It is such a, a drawing power that it causes someone, motivates someone, results in someone even in the face of looking at the very person of Jesus Christ himself and the miracles that he does. 
And the response is, he's not of God. This isn't true. I don't believe. Now we could stop right there and say, well, that's just because they have not been granted faith by Christ to believe, and, and that's true as far as it goes. Or we could stop right there and say, well, what they need is more miracles. What they need are more works of God. What they need are more demons to be cast out of people. What they need are more people to be raised from the dead. What they need are more of these mighty works of power by Christ so that they, by the sheer weight of the experience, would believe. But friends, it seems to me that after a three-year-plus ministry of Christ on the earth, and all of the things that every one of them saw and heard and, and had the opportunity, the, the privilege, the command to believe and obey based upon all the things that Jesus did, no amount of extra works, no amount of of more miracles would have resulted in the belief of these people. In fact, it says, many listeners were astonished. And verse 5 says, he laid his hands on only a few sick people. Over and over and over again, the Bible speaks of many and few. Many are on the broad road, few are on the narrow road that leads to life. And here, we have in six brief verses what I could call the pathology of the power of unbelief. What does unbelief look like? What are its components? If you were tracking a disease as pathologists do, attempting to determine uh, the root cause and all of the manifestations of that disease, what would it look like? And in the pen of John Mark, he gives us the pathology of the power of unbelief. And here's the first one. Number one, what does unbelief look like? Unbelief, we could say, astonishingly denies God's message. You want to know the pathology of unbelief? You want to know how it works? The first thing it does is that it denies, astonishingly denies, God's very message. Look at verses 1 and 2. Jesus went out from there and came into his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And when Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and the many listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man receive these things, and what is this wisdom given to him, and such works of power as these performed by his hands? And you know from our previous studies in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus had just been doing some miracles in Capernaum and that he just healed Jairus' daughter after she had died, interrupted by the woman with the hemorrhage for 12 years. She was bleeding uh, slowly but surely to death and Jesus had healed both of them just in the prior section and in the context of Mark's gospel. And so he leaves Capernaum and he goes back to his hometown of Nazareth. And you might assume that if Jesus is going to go back to his hometown after just hearing in Capernaum all of these people, hearing that Jesus had done these things, had performed these tremendous works, had raised even a little 12-year-old girl from the dead, that he would have received a, a tremendous reception. 
in his own hometown. It would be like the rabbi has come back and he is our rabbi. You know how people do with uh, their hometown boys. Now, one of the things that was striking to me when I came back to Arkansas, where I was raised, was to come back a couple of years ago and to see a sign that had been posted around all of the city limits that says, home of President Bill Clinton, the first capital President Clinton called home, Little Rock. And they want to uh, up the ante for their hometown boy. And everybody's excited about the boy or girl who makes good. Well, you would assume that Nazareth, Nazareth would be the same thing, that they'd be welcoming back this one for whom everybody's heard about. And not just for someone who holds some political office, but for someone who's raised someone from the dead. Now, that can't be top, folks. And here, you would assume he receives the same kind of reception. Jesus has a custom, as you know, according to verse 2. He teaches in the synagogue. So he comes back to his own hometown. He should have received a giant reception, and they should have welcomed him back as the, the guest preacher back to his hometown in the synagogue, ready to teach. And yet, instead of a wild affirmation, he receives nothing but hostility and rejection. You say, how so? It only says here in verse 2 that his listeners were astonished at his teaching, saying, where did this man receive these things? What is this wisdom and these works of power? Uh, that doesn't seem to me to be hostility and rejection. It is. It is. You say, why? Well, there's nothing in this text and there's nothing in any other text that says that this astonishment produced reverence, that this wonder on the part of the recipients of his message, his own hometown folks, that they responded with the fear of God, with worship and with praise. Uh, there's nothing here or any other text that says that when Jesus taught in Nazareth, there was a revival, there was a spiritual awakening, that people realized that this Jesus Christ was in fact God come in the flesh. He was the Messiah, the one for whom believing Jews have always looked and prayed. Nothing of that. The only thing the text says is that they were astonished, and then they began to ask some questions. And the questions have within them the implication of offense, of anger, of hostility, of rejection. Question number one, where did this man receive these things? In other words, we don't deny the authority inherent in his message. We're compelled to admit that. But we're asking, what is the origin of this teaching? What is the origin of this man? Who is this guy? We know this fellow to be one of us. What's he doing? How could he have this kind of message? Where did he receive it? You see, because of the power of unbelief, they were unwilling to acknowledge that his teaching was divinely inspired. I mean, think of it. Here's the rabbi. Everybody acknowledges him to be a teacher. He has already the reputation that he raises people from the dead, that he casts out demons, that he heals the sick, that he makes the lame to walk, that he gives sight back to the blind. They've already heard all of that. They respond to all of this. They hear now his own teaching from their own synagogue. He's a hometown boy. All of the weight of that evidence should be what? The unmistakable conclusion should be this is the Messiah for which we prayed and sung and taught and looked. Here he is. This Jesus 
this one who had lived among us, he must be the one. He must be the Messiah. Who else would do these things? Who else could have the power of God to raise from the dead and to teach like this man where grace is falling from his lips, where everything he said are apples of gold and pictures of silver? Instead they say, who is this guy? And their second question, what is this wisdom given to him? This is incongruous. We don't understand. This is Jesus. This is the one who lived among us and worked with his father Joseph in the woodworker's shop. Where does he get off coming to us with this kind of wisdom? He hasn't been educated. He doesn't know what he's talking about. And yet, the wisdom that he gives, it, it seems as though it's the wisdom of God. It, it doesn't make sense to us. And then they ask the third question, and such works of power or miracles as these performed by his hands. I mean, in their minds, they're saying at one moment, he does woodworking for me in a house that I own, and I see the woodworking that he's fashioned in my own home, whatever it may be, and then the next moment I'm hearing this man teach in the synagogue and he teaches with the wisdom of God and I know for sure that he healed a relative of mine who lives in Capernaum. I don't understand this. How could it be? How could these works of power come from this lowly woodworker? Surely this couldn't be from God. And you know what the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes did with the answer to that question. Do you remember? They said, not only do we not understand this, but we believe that if those works are true, and they are, we can't deny them, it must not come from God, but from whom? The devil, Beelzebub. He does the work by the origin and power of the devil, which, as you know, is the absolute opposite of the truth for which they've committed blasphemy. Could it be that some would even the Nazareth community might assume that Jesus is not only not from God, but this woodworker could be doing these things by the power of the devil. So, nothing here that says their astonishment is leading to faith. I mean, they're in essence saying, if I can understand how this has occurred, I don't believe it. I just don't believe. And that's our world, isn't it? The weight of evidence is this, that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh, that he died, that he was buried, that he was raised again according to the power of God. The scripture says it, the mouth of millions of witnesses say it, the truth of the history books are factual regarding it, and yet what do people do? I don't believe. I don't believe that. It's a fairy tale. It's false. It's something that you need, Lance, as a crutch because you can't make it otherwise. Oh, that's fine for you, but for me, I'm a little bit more intellectual than that. You're relying on a 2,000-year-old book. You can't even live in your own century. You're not worshiping at the God of technology. And therefore, I have nothing to say to you. You can't speak into my life. I don't believe. We, we know a few contemporary 
Nazarenes, don't we? They live in Nazareth. They work in Nazareth. They have a relationship to the ones who speak of Jesus as the Messiah, the one come from God. And when the evidence is presented and when you live your holy life in front of them, these Nazarenes say, I don't believe. I don't believe. I don't believe your message. And they astonishingly deny the very message that has come from God. Secondly, the pathology of the power of unbelief includes this, that unbelief offensively defames God's messenger. Unbelief offensively defames God's messenger. Look at verses 3 and 4. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. Notice what their unbelief does regarding not simply the message, but even the messenger. I mean, they, they go away from the works, from the works of power, from the wisdom that he had. And they go away from the message, and now they want to defame the messenger. Is not this the carpenter? He's just a plain old woodworker. He's not anything special, is he? He's not a real rabbi. What does a carpenter know about prophetic interpretation? He's never been to school. He doesn't have his B.A., M.A., and Ph.D. in theology. How can he understand anything? All he does is work with his hands. He, ha he hasn't even studied with Gamaliel. He hasn't even been to the University of Tarsus. I mean, what are we to believe about this guy? I mean, yes, it's true that the works are being done. Yes, it's true we don't deny those things but we believe that maybe it has another point of origin. Because this guy just doesn't have the credentials. You remember in Luke chapter 4, verse 22, they're again astonished. They're saying, And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips, and they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? I mean, come on. How could it be that this is the Messiah? We know who he is. He's just like another Joe. In John chapter 6, verse 41, Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. And they were saying, is, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble among yourselves. See, they were grumbling. They were disbelieving. They were grumbling. They were hostile. They were jealous. And in our text in Mark 6, it says they were seeing Jesus as offensive. Even in John chapter 7, Verse 15, the Jews then were astonished, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? I mean, he hasn't had the pedigree. 
Who is this guy anyway? This is offensive to me. That was the implication. And if you read in John chapter 8 and in John chapter 9, they, they may even, those who weren't from his hometown, those who were from Jerusalem, the religious leaders, they may have even implied that since Joseph wasn't around and since they referred to him as the son of Mary instead of the son of Joseph, that he had a questionable parentage. Maybe since his father isn't around, maybe he's actually illegitimate. And maybe this occurred through an illicit relationship and uh, Mary was playing around and now she's uh, birthed this person named Jesus and he's coming along as a supposed rabbi. Where's his father? You see, the Jews would not have affirmed anyone who didn't have the nuclear family, a father, a mother, other brothers and sisters, the one who, would do, who have done the deeds that they would have seen in the Old Testament, and they couldn't deny the deeds, but they were saying, well, where's his father then? Surely this can't be the Messiah. And so because of all these things and more, the power of unbelief leads one to say, he's offensive to me. I'm offended by him. Can you imagine that? Anyone being offended at Jesus Christ? The one who never said anything wrong. The one who never did anything wrong. The one who only spoke out of absolute humility. The one who did nothing but lead graciously. The one who was perfect in every single way, never doing anything that was wrong, never a misstep, never a harsh word, never anything but utter and absolute perfection. Someone hears him teach and say, you know, that offends me. You know, you're offensive to me. You know what that is? That's unbelief. That is unbelief. That's how far unbelief will go. In fact, the word for offense here, scandalizo, scandal. This is a scandal that has occurred in Nazareth. The rabbi, the good old boy Jesus has come back to the roost and he's offensive to us. We don't believe him or his message. He's arrogant, he's proud, he's offensive. But you know, that's exactly what unbelief does. That's why in 1 Peter chapter 2, it speaks about both belief and unbelief. And here's what it says. To those who believe, Jesus is precious. But to those who are unbelieving, he's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And it's as clear as as those two choices. If I believe Jesus Christ, He's altogether lovely, He's precious, He's humble, He's meek, He's strong, He is God in human flesh. There is no reason to believe anything else but what the Scripture says about Him. And I don't even have to see Him in the flesh. I believe it because the Scripture says it, and I believe it because God has opened my blind eyes, and I see, and I witness with the Scripture that what God says is true. And I believe. I don't have to live by sight. I can live by faith. But for those who disbelieve, the pathology of the power of unbelief is this. I don't care what you tell me. I don't care who he is. I don't care what his message is. He is offensive to me. Have you ever seen it when you hear maybe an athlete or an entertainer or someone who has a level of visibility who's interviewed on television, and if they said, 
Uh, I give God the credit for my life or achievements or victory. And no one seems to have any problem with that in our pluralistic society. But have someone said, I give all the glory to God and Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God. And I give all the glory to Him. Now that is going to offend some people. And Jesus Christ is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to those who disbelieve. And so, the Scripture tells us the choice is ours. To believe in Christ is to see a precious Christ. To disbelieve Christ is to render someone as having Christ as offensive. And that's what unbelief does. Thirdly, the pathology of the power of unbelief unmercifully debilitates God's power. Unbelief descends not only from astonishingly denying the message of God, it not only defames incredibly the, the messenger of God, but it descends even to the point where God does not do miracles in the place where unbelief exists. Now, that's incredible. It actually debilitates the power of God to do miracles in a certain place. Look at verse 4. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. That's, that's a shocking statement. I mean, Jesus is saying that a rabbi, a teacher, a man of God, a, a prophet, a teacher of righteousness, uh, he has honor wherever he goes except in his own hometown and even among his own relatives, and even in his own household. Unbelief is such an incredibly powerful thing that it causes a person who might even be living next to the Son of the living God to say, I don't believe it. Did you know that until Acts chapter 1, when we see that his brothers are in the upper room, praying with the disciples, that before that time it appears as though his brothers are not only in disbelief, but rancorous disbelief. Even the brothers of Jesus himself did not believe. Incredible. They lived with him. They saw him. They could have affirmed that he was perfect. They heard his teaching. They were in the room. They may have even traveled with him to see the works that he'd done from his heavenly Father, and yet they didn't believe. You know the old phrase, you fill it in, familiarity breeds contempt. There were people even in his own hometown, yea, even in his own family, who were seeing Jesus as contemptible from the lips of Christ himself. There's no honor there, even in my own household. And as a result, verse 5, he could do no miracle there except that he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them. Wow. He could do no miracle there. It wasn't that there was an inability on Jesus' part, but more 
that he believed it to be morally wrong, morally impossible for him to exercise his healing power in the face of incredible unbelief. I mean, that is just a shock to me. Even in his own hometown, maybe even with some of his extended family, he was not going to do any miracles because of the power of unbelief. Boy, that is strong. That is strong. Apparently there was just a few who recognized Jesus, believed, and he healed them. Unbelief is incredibly debilitating. So much so that even when the Son of God is physically present and I'm looking at Him with my own eyes, if I don't believe Him, if I see Him as offensive, if He is contemptuous to me, the most incredible thing in the world would be for Christ to turn His back and walk away. The Son of God, right before my very eyes, ready, willing, able to do the works of God. You see, no miracle ever produced faith. Only God grants faith. And he was not entrusting himself to these because they were in their utter disbelief. Incredible pathology, isn't it? And lastly, unbelief incredibly demands shock on the part of the Son of God. Unbelief incredibly demands shock on the part of the Son of God. Verse 6a. And he wondered at their unbelief. Unbelief, actually in this text, according to the Word of God, demanded shock on the part of Christ. He looked in his own hometown and he says, I'm willing to do miracles in this place. And they said, you're offensive to us. And he was shocked. You know, that may happen, obviously, on an infinitely smaller scale, but when you live your testimony for Christ in front of a watching world, maybe with someone at work or maybe even someone within your own household, and you know you're not perfect, but you know you want to live for Christ, and you know that you confess your sins when you do sin, and you know that you're maturing and growing in your faith, and you live that way, and you want desperately for your spouse to come to the Lord, or you want your children to come to faith in Christ, or you want those in your neighborhood or those you work with, and you work hard and hard and hard and hard for many, many years. And they look at you and they say, I don't believe. I don't believe. And nothing you've done or said has convinced me that Jesus Christ is whom you say he is. You, you can see very easily how it would cause shock. And it caused shock on the part of Christ. He marveled at their unbelief. But you know, he also, with some of the Gentiles, even, even the Gentiles and not the Jews, in Matthew 8.10 and Luke 7.9, it says, And he marveled, he was astonished at their great faith. You say, why? Because they were Gentiles. They weren't even God's chosen people. And yet somehow and in some way, the Gentiles believed the message that the Jews were giving them and for which most of those Jews did not believe themselves. And yet the Gentiles said, I believe. And the centurion said, I believe. Lord, help my unbelief. I believe you can do it. Just say the word. Just come to my house. Just look at them. Just think about it and they'll be healed. 
Do you want God to wonder, to be astonished, to be shocked at your belief or your unbelief? See, the choice is ours. Do you believe God? Do you love Him? Do you see Him as precious? Or do you secretly in your heart, maybe when no one knows, scorn those who believe in Christ or scorn Christ Himself? Do you love those who love Christ or you despise those who love Christ? Remember, to those who believe, He is precious. To those who disbelieve, He's a rock of offense. Do you believe in Christ? Do you believe that He is the one who came down from heaven to be the salvation of sinners? Do you believe that He died, that He was buried, that He was raised again from the dead? Do you believe that He came to, to deliver us from that which was certain doom? If you do, He's precious. In fact, He's so precious. He's really the only thing that's precious to any of us when the truth is ultimately revealed. Only Christ. Or do you live your life maybe even just passively disbelieving, just going through the motions, not passionately pursuing Christ because you think He's precious. Well, that's the pathology of unbelief, and you don't want to engender shock on the part of the Son of God, and you don't want to debilitate His power, and you don't certainly want to defame the messenger, and you most certainly don't want to do anything to ever deny the message itself. Be not unbelieving, but be believing in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, it is only by your word and by your will that we can even call you Father. It is only by your plan from eternity past that gives us the ability to believe in Christ. And we do believe in Christ. We don't just believe that He was the Son of God, that He was buried and, and that He was resurrected, but that we believe Him, we rely upon Him, we trust Him as the one who will deliver us personally from our sins. He's the only way and truth and life that we sung about earlier. And we do believe that He is our Savior. And we want Him to marvel, to, to have great wonder that we believe. Lord, I pray for anyone here who is living in unbelief and under the grip of its power. I pray that You would deliver them by your mighty hand that they would have this morning recognized I admit, I acknowledge I confess that I don't believe I haven't entrusted my soul to Christ I'm still trying to live a good life I'm still trying to do what I believe will gain me entrance into heaven oh Father, shake them from that confidence for it is no confidence at all Bring them to the place where that disbelief and its power is broken, smashed by the power of God. And let us affirm together 
But greater is He who is in us than He that is in the world. We ask that You would give us that which we could not give to ourselves. That this precious value is for us who believe. We're not only not offended by Christ, but we love Christ. We pray that everyone would love Christ and give you praise and glory. Amen.